0: Good morning, church. How is everybody this morning? So good to see you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers. If you have not been a part of this church for very long, if we've not had a chance to meet, I sure would love to. After our gathering, just meet me in the lobby. And if you would rather not meet me, just don't go to the lobby, okay? That's just the way it is. So good to see you all. Welcome to our friends and family joining us online. We have many who are away this week because of fall break. Enjoy the beach. With that said, are you guys ready to get into weird stuff of Revelation? We're going to either way, so you might as well play along. I mean, here we go. Some of you have asked, how do I understand the outline of Revelation? So, I'm going to give you a very simple outline. Grab a piece of paper. I want you to write this down. This is so simple, you'll get the entire outline of Revelation in this one drawing. Okay? I'll give you a 2nd to grab a piece of paper. All right? It's very simple. In fact, some of you, let's just be honest. You don't expect anything else from me other than for very simple, okay? So, here we go. Let me give you, this is an outline of the book of Revelation. Now, you think I'm joking, but I'm really not. See, the outline makes a lot of sense in the first three chapters. And the last few chapters make a lot of sense. We know that this is Jesus showing up to John, talking to the seven churches. We know that at the end of time, Jesus wins. The devil goes to hell, the saints go to heaven. Yay, God! But it's this middle stuff that we kind of go, Huh? Now, last week we got into a bit of this weird middle when we came to chapters 4 and 5 and we saw the worship of God and the Lamb in heaven. It's a little weird, but now chapter 6 through the end of the, cha- uh, of the book, almost or through chapter 19 rather, is where we get into the swirly, weird middle. And so today we're going to dive in, but here's what I need you to hear before we look at any of it. Two things. Number one. We look at all of Scripture because we do not need to be afraid of anything in the Bible. Did you know the book of Revelation is the only New Testament book that says there's a blessing attached for those who study it and are willing to apply what they learn? So we should study it and not be afraid of it. And number two, we're reading this because it applies to today. What we're about to read... Does not simply apply to those who went before us or to those sometime in the future. It applies to today. If you want a picture of what's happening today, then pay attention to what we look at today. You say, what is it? Here's the way I want us to set this up. We're coming into the holiday season. I know we've still got a couple months till Christmas, but this is the season where we begin to prepare for all the fun festivities. And finally, it all sort of culminates on Christmas morning. How many of you remember that moment, Christmas morning, where maybe you see that gift that you've been eyeing for the past three weeks sitting under the tree, or even better, it's too big to fit under the tree, so it's next to the tree. And that moment comes where it's time to open the gift the package is given to you, and you begin to peel back the layers of the wrapping, and you see little hints of what's underneath. You're like, oh, oh, yes, oh, yes, and you peel further and further until you have unveiled the entire gift. And you're like, yeah! For me, it was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles turtle blimp. Anyone else? A turtle friend. Anyone else? Yeah, okay, friends of the 80s. For you, it may have been something else. But for today, here's what I want you to get. This is the image I want you to have as John is seeing Jesus Christ peeling back the seals on the scroll with God's plan for how he's going to fix everything. John's getting glimpse after glimpse, and finally he's like, yes. And so as his followers today, we say yes. Now we're going to read a lot of text. I'm going to ask you to bear with me. We're going to look at all of chapter 6, 7, and the first six verses of 8. Don't worry, I'm not going to do the reading, but I want you to pay attention. In fact, don't even look on your text. I want you to listen as though you were sitting in the churches there in Asia Minor, these small house churches, as they are hearing the words read for the first time from Jesus through John to them. And may God teach us as we listen. So let's hear the word of the Lord.
1: I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals, then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest.
2: When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a
3: large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine.
4: When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth.
1: When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been.
2: I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth. As figs drop from a fig tree, when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it?
3: After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel.
4: From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000.
1: From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000.
2: From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar,
3: 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000.
4: After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb.
1: never again will they thirst the sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd he will lead them to springs of living water and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes
2: when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on a golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it onto the And there came peals of thunder,
3: rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Together Together we we say, Speak, Lord, for your your servants are
1: listening.
0: Well, if there aren't any questions, we'll just close in prayer. What in the world did we just listen to? All right, here you go. You ready? We're going to walk through these. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven seals. These don't just have application to back then or sometime in the future, these are for you and me today. Let's begin. Jesus has received. The scroll from God in the previous chapters, the scroll symbolizes God's plan to fix everything, but there are seven seals on it, meaning no one can open it except for the one who is perfect and can fulfill God's plan perfectly. Jesus takes the scroll and he begins to tear off the seals. The first seal presents this rider on a white horse with a crown and a bow. Now, who is this individual? This writer symbolizes Jesus Christ. Now, there is some debate. Is this Jesus? Is this someone else? But it seems most logically that it is Jesus Christ. Why? He is on a white horse. He has a crown. And pay attention to this. He is the first on the scene. In the beginning, John writes in John 1.1, 1, 1, was the Word, was Jesus. In the beginning, He created all things. He is the one who established all things. And so... It makes sense that Christ would reveal himself as the first one on the scenes of creation. He rides across this landscape with a crown, for he rules all things. But why a bow? Here's why. In the Roman Empire, they were unafraid of pretty much any other group or empire except for one. There was this one group that used bows and arrows and rode horses. Why were they scared of them? The Romans, the way that they would fight is they did not use cavalry as much as infantry. People just organized in legions. And they were very effective on the battlefield, but they were very slow in moving about, which meant this other nation could ride their horses, maneuver around them, and shoot at them from the side and behind. And so Rome was terrified and angry and hated this group. Jesus comes on the scene with a bow and arrow as a way of telling his followers, don't you dare believe that Rome is the ultimate power. I was here first, and I am more powerful than the worst of the worst of the worst. Now, we begin to see the other three horsemen approach, but before we do, let me be very clear. What we are about to witness, God does not so much cause as he allows There are many things in this world that God does not cause to happen, but allows to happen. In fact, we all know this to be true. How many of you have ever rolled off a bed in the middle of the night? You go thunk, you hit your head, you cry, if you're young, maybe. What happened? Did God cause you to fall, or did gravity Pull you down when you went off the edge. Gravity. God allows many things to happen. The natural consequence of living in this world and the natural consequence of saying we don't want Jesus as our king ushers in the next three horsemen. Because when a people, a family, a city, a nation, or the world rejects God, what we now see is God allowing things to happen. By the way... God is a good God. Often he will actually put his hand in front of the consequence of your actions. And the problem is many of us confuse God's grace with God's weakness. I got away with it. There's no consequence. Do not be fooled. The reason you do not face consequence immediately is because of God's grace. But when he pulls his hand away, the consequence come to bear. And so the next rider is one on a red horse and he is war. He was given the sword to kill. Isn't it interesting, the very first thing that happens in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, as soon as Adam and Eve reject God and sin, the next story is of two brothers. Do you remember their names, by the way? Church? Cain and Abel. And do you know what happens with Cain and Abel? Cain kills Abel. See, the first thing that happens when we reject God is we go to war with one another. Brother against brother, family against family, City and nation against nation after all. If God is not the one who gives salvation and protection, we must protect ourselves, defend ourselves, advance ourselves, even if it means that you must lose in the process. And so the story of Cain and Abel didn't just happen. It continues to happen throughout history, doesn't it? How many of you are familiar with the names the Hadfields and the McCoys? The two families, one kills... A son of another family. The other family says, Revenge on the first family. They say, Well, you killed one of ours, we'll kill one of yours. And back and forth throughout history, these families go to war because when God is not in charge of your life, you take everything on yourself. Is it true we live in a world at war? Oh, yeah. It's a consequence. There's a second consequence that follows after war, and it's an obvious continuation of it. It's the black horse. His rider is famine. Everyone say, famine. Think about this. Men go to war. They die on the battlefield, so there's no one to come home and work the fields. Famine is the natural consequence. And you have unexploded landmines scattered across these fields. In fact, as we were in Israel a few weeks ago, we're going to the eastern coastline of Israel, we actually saw Syria and the border between Israel and Syria and the UN building right there. And along the drive, we passed by a few fields with these red signs that if I could have read the Hebrew words written on them, I would have read, warning, landmines. There are still children who will go into those fields to this day, and every once in a while you'll hear about one who is killed because these landmines from wars long ago that have not been unearthed still cause destruction. You have war that leads to famine. And did you notice he's carrying scales in his hand? How much did he say for a day's thing of bread? Hundreds of dollars. Astronomical prices. Isn't it interesting? that the things that are so vital to life we cannot afford. And yet, he says, but don't touch the wine or the oil, the luxuries, the things no one really needs, but there's just an abundance of it. We are starving as a nation, as a people, as a world for what is true. And so we go home and we turn on our flat screen TVs with hundreds of channels and we cannot find the basics of life on it. We cannot hear one true thing, can we? We have all that we don't need and nothing that we do. We are starving for the truth. And so you have war, you have famine, and finally, this brings about illness and death. Now, why in the world do you think a pale green horse is the symbol for sickness and death? Well, what happens when you feel sick to your stomach? You turn what color? Green. You're sick. Or a body that has been left out into the sun becomes bleached white and begins to fester and turn a greenish white. This is the symbol, the picture of death. Because when people have rejected God, although death may not come immediately, it is the inevitable consequence of rejecting the source of life. Consider this for a moment. This is the natural consequence of illness and death to a people who tell God, My body is my own, you are no longer the boss, it is not your temple anymore. We are spending billions of dollars as a nation on health care to take care of sicknesses related to smoking, to overeating, to not exercising, to abusing alcohol. Billions of dollars because we have told God we are the masters of our own lives. And so we have preventable diseases because we have said... Not thy will, but my will be done. Is it any wonder we have such destructive and broken lives because we have bought the lie that we don't need the life giver to have life? This is the consequence of walking away from God as individuals and as nations and as a world. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I think about it, many of us, we recognize that we need something and so we we want someone to fix what's wrong with us but with a pill. Or with something else. From the baby boomer generation all the way through, we are a nation of people who want the quick fix and no responsibility. In fact, case in point, we want to be able to sit on the couch and lose weight. Have you seen, I almost showed a video and I thought, no, better not. Have you seen this machine? It is an electric ab machine. Have you even heard of one of these things? Okay, Okay, no joke. You can buy a machine that you paste to your gut... You turn it on, and it shoots little electrical pulses through, thus stimulating your abs like this. I saw a video of a guy who was just a little bit large. He turned it on. It looked like he was shaking a jello mold. We're looking for all the quick fixes, and nothing seems to fix it. And so we were told, you can have sex with as many people whenever, however you like. And we don't expect to hear news of something called monkeypox. Or we tell little boys and little girls that if you're confused about things, surgery and pills will fix it. No one ever tells them about the lifelong scars, both emotional and physical. We are a world that is needing the life giver, but we've rejected the one on the white horse. And so the other horses follow naturally. Are we all tracking so far? Give me an uh uh-huh or a head nod if you're with me. But it's not just that there's those out there who deal with these consequences. Isn't it true... That everyone has been touched by sin's effect. That's what the fifth and sixth seals show us. The fifth seal you have, the saints, the Christians who've been killed for their faith, they are under the throne of God, and they say, how long, O God, until you judge those who have harmed us? In other words, the church is harmed. We're not exempt. Just because you follow Jesus, expect opposition and expect pain. You live in a broken world, church. It shouldn't surprise us. And then the sixth seal, you hear that as that one's peeled back, the sun goes dark, the moon turns to blood, the stars fall like meteors to the ground. You say, wow, what is that a symbol for? That simply means even creation has been affected by the brokenness of this world. Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us creation groans like it's in childbearing moments. See, everything has been affected. And in this moment where the shaking of the world, where the kings, even the most powerful, say, oh no, when everything you ever counted on is falling to the ground, it is in this moment we see history repeating itself over and over and over. And you say, well, when did this happen? And my better question is, when has this not happened? (laughs) Any one of you affected by a little thing called inflation right now? The average person is spending over $400 more a month on things that a year ago they weren't. That's pretty impressive. You say, man, this has never happened before. Well, then you haven't lived very long, have you? How many of you remember the recession of 2008 through about 11? Or if you lived a little bit longer than that, how many of us remember a little thing called 9-11? Roll back the tape further. Do you remember the misery index of the 1970s? Or what about the influence of fear of nuclear annihilation during the Cold War? Or what about the Vietnam War? Or you keep going back. Or you have the rate the great depression. My point is, and by the way, that's only America. I'm not even telling you about what's happening right now around the world. In other words, this is the natural consequence of saying, I will be God and God can take a hike. So what's the the goal? What's the solution? And I love this. In the Mm -hmm. moment where you can almost imagine John just kind of slumping in his chair going, well, that's depressing. Do you know what he sees next? Chapter 7. Then I saw a multitude, a hundred and forty-four thousand. And one of the elders says to John, who are these? And John goes, well, you know who they are. He goes, yeah, I do, but do you know who they are? They are those who follow God. Now, here's the question. Why one hundred and forty-four thousand? This is what we call symbol stacking. There's multiple symbols. Uh, put one on top of the other, sort of like Legos. And so, this number, let me give you what this number represents 144. Well, that is 12 times 12. Why 12? 12 symbolizes God's people. So, you have 12. Well, let me just ask you this. <clears throat> How many tribes do you have in the Old Testament? Very good. It's on the screen, so you can cheat. It's all right, okay? How many apostles do you have in the New Testament, church? Twelve times twelve is one hundred and forty-four, all of God's faithful in the old, all of God's faithful in the new through the church age. Together, one hundred and forty-four. Well, what about the thousands? What does that symbolize? In the Hebrew mind, thousands symbolize the multitudes. In other words, one hundred and forty-four thousand, these are all of the faithful of God through history. And did you catch it? They're not all from America. They're from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Little fun thought experiment. How do we know that they're from every tongue? Unless in heaven we get to retain certain things that were part of our experience on earth. Isn't this interesting? Here's what he's saying. There's a place even for you in God's kingdom. Now some people say 144,000 means there's really only 144,000. How many of you have ever met or heard someone say This is a literal number, and there will only be 144,000 people saved. Anyone else ever heard that before? Yeah. Every once in a while, someone comes come up to me and say, Diggs, you know there's only 144,000 who are going to be saved. I go, really? Are you one of them? They go, absolutely. i got to tell you, I've never met someone who believes that, who doesn't think they're one of the 144,000. It's amazing that I only meet those people. Point is not that it's literal. The point is that there's a space for everyone who will bow their knee to Jesus. Which means no one is too far from the grace of God. Hey, listen, some of you in here this morning, I know you've been sealed by God. You're a part of His family, and we celebrate that. We're going to talk to you in a moment, but there's another group in here. You you listen week after week, or maybe you stumbled in here today, and you're not even sure why. Here's why. It's because the God who rode on the scene in the beginning of time has rode into your life and wants you to be a part of this family forever. He is desperate to see you come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're told that all of these were not simply worshipers, but they were sealed. Now, what does that word mean? This is a callback to Deuteronomy 15, verse 16 and 17. In the old law, there was all these rules about how slaves were to be treated. And did you know slavery, a little bit different. One of the ways it was different, if you got into debt you could sell yourself to someone to pay off your debts for a limited period of time but if at the end of that period you said i love this family i love these people they take great care of me i need help i love them i want to stay with them then you could say may i be a part of your family and they would mark you with a scar and this was a sign or a seal to the rest of the world i'm a part of this family. I'm no longer on my own. This is the image that we are now sealed by God. And isn't it interesting that the sealing in the Old Testament would be a scar? How does the Lord Jesus Christ show the world that he is with us? With scars on his hands, his feet, and his side. See, you're simply identifying with Jesus the way he identifies with you. And this brings up a very important question now, doesn't it, my brothers and sisters? See, we hear that Jesus is the first on the scene, that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is the one who is marshalling forces throughout history and will bring things to a conclusion. Here is the question. Are you marked by Jesus Christ this morning? Have you been baptized? Have you given your life to Him? Do you walk with Jesus? See, often we get so infatuated by who is the beast. What is 666? And we'll talk about that, but the book of Revelation is not about the beast. It is not about 666. The book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. And yes, there is a mark of the enemy, but there is a mark of Jesus Christ. And the question is, have you been marked by Jesus Christ? And better yet, as a scar cannot be hidden, do people know that you're his? See, I'm afraid, and listen, this is coming from personal experience. There are moments where Joshua does not want to stand out. There are moments where I want to blend in. And my fear is that for so many of us, we are doing such a good job blending into the culture that Jesus himself won't be able to find us. Have you been marked with him? That you're his and he is yours. And there's this beautiful phrase then, this marked crowd, they worship him because the only response to salvation is worship. And that doesn't just mean you sing, but with your whole life you give God your best. And they worship him. Him. And then, did you catch the phrase, who are these people? These are those, put it up, these are those who have come out of the great say this word with me. Tribulation, yeah. Now what is that about? Is that a thousand years, three years? What's this all about? We'll talk about that in weeks to come. But there's something under the surface I want you to pay attention to. Do you notice that He saves you through the tribulation? He does not take you out of it. See, there's this little ugly truth that I have had to learn, and maybe you've learned as well, is that God, when I pray, help me, Lord Jesus, take care of me, what I want him to do is to pick me up from one spot, take me over the problem, put me on the other side so I can look back and go, that was close. That's not what he does, is it? When I pray, Lord, help me with this relationship, this person is so difficult, I don't know what to do. Does Jesus take you away from the person? No. Every time from that point onward that you go to the gas pump, you go to the grocery store, you go and sit on your pew in your seat at church, lo and behold, that difficult person is sitting next to you. What does God do when you have the problem and you pray? He puts you in the middle of the problem. Why? So he can take you through it so that you are not afraid of it ever again. If he simply takes you to the other side, you go, I made it, but please, I'm terrified of it because I have not seen how you can work through it. He is a good enough God that he takes you right up to that thing that you are so afraid of, and he will lead you through it. What is it the psalmist says? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For why? Why? You are with me. And he says, I will lead you through this. And as a result, they are dressed in white. Because God perfects us and purifies us through the pain. Now, we come to the last seal. Are you ready for number seven? Everyone say yes. Yes. Are you ready for the sermon to be over? Don't say yes. Here we go. (laughs) Seventh seal. After he's seen the consequences of sin and he's seen the 144,000, how will God resolve what has happened? It says that there was now silence for 30 minutes. Isn't that just like God? We've been praying that he'd do something. We've been begging him to help and nothing. See, this is the reason some of you have said, I'll come to church, but I'm not so sure about God. This is why friends of yours have given up because they think they prayed one time and God didn't listen. If there is a God, he just doesn't care. Or there just is no God. But Jesus is very clear. Just because you do not hear his immediate response doesn't mean he has ignored your prayer. You say, how do I know that? Look at the next verse. Immediately after, the prayers of the saints are gathered up and something happens. Now, the prayers of the saints are described as incense in this passage and in chapter 5. In chapter 5, go ahead and put this up. The prayers are incense. They're the prayers of God's people. Why this? Okay, stay with me for two more minutes. Here we go. Incense, there's a special kind of incense or, or smell that they would only use for in the temple of God. Do, do you know why? It's because smell, more than any other of your senses is connected to memory, isn't it? So so how many of you, if there are certain smells... that will take you back to a place in your life... there are certain smells that if I smell them... like bacon and coffee... I think of my grandmother's house. That and pot roast, but that's another story, okay? For some of us, it's the smell of a hospital. You can smell that sort of... that acrid sort of smell that... and it takes you right back to that moment... where you're with that loved one in the hospital room, doesn't it? Or you remember that smell of your, your pet or whatever thing... And the reason God uses smell here is so that any time they smell this particular smell, it will take them back to the reality that their prayers are in the presence of God, that God is near. In other words, when you pray, it goes up to God. Don't you dare believe the lie that God does not receive every prayer you've ever prayed. Mothers, when you have cried out to God for your children in the middle of the night, God receives that. Friends, when you have woken up to find that note, God hears the cry of your heart. There has never been a prayer you've prayed that God did not receive and hold on to. You say, yeah, but I need Him to do something with it. Well, good news. The prayers are taken, and there's an altar image in heaven with a fire on it, and an angel takes the incense, lights it on fire, and then casts it down to the earth. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. In ways that we cannot explain, God uses the prayers of his people, casts it back to the earth to affect God's will on the earth. Your prayers, hear me now, in a way that I don't understand, God uses to affect his plan on the earth. So friends, let me ask you one more question this morning. Yes, are you sealed? But here's the second question. If you are not praying, then what is God lighting on fire and sending to the earth? if god works through your prayers and look does god need our prayers church the answer is no does god need our church or our prayers church no he doesn't need our prayers but god uses them in ways we cannot understand fully so if you and i are not praying then what is god sending back to the earth to affect his will See, this is the beautiful picture. We see all of history unfolding in these seven seals. And we see here at the end that God actually partners with His people to effect His will on the earth. So, are you marked and are you praying? And this scene, as the seven trumpets are about to blow, as the next scene is about to unfold, there's 30 minutes of silence. It's almost as though John says... I think we need to catch our breath before we see what's next. And so here's the question as we catch our breath this morning. Have you been sealed with Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him? So you don't have to wonder about the mark of the beast if you have the mark of the lamb. And you don't have to be afraid of what comes tomorrow if you're held by the one who holds tomorrow. And so... This is where we wait. And this is where I hope you'll respond. Let's pray together. Father, we give to you our lives, our very essence, and we tell you in this moment how hard it is sometimes to trust that you can take care of everything that's broken. But as we see this vision unfold, I pray that our hearts would reaffirm that when the world asks the question, we as the church would stand and say, we are with Jesus Christ. We step out in faith clearly because he is the one first on the scene and he will be the one who closes the books of history at the end. And we will be a part of that with him by his grace. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who need to simply live more fully in their signing. May we pray bold prayers, confident of your answer. And for my friends who have yet to be sealed with you, I pray, Spirit, do work on them right now. Speak to them in such a way that they will say yes to you, placing their hope, their trust in Jesus, sealed with baptism, that they may experience the fullness of life on this earth and in the earth to come. We love you to Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, and all those who greet said, amen. amen.